Hello, and welcome to the podcast of Emmanuel Assemblies of God in Knoxville, Tennessee. We're so glad you've taken the time to listen. If you're ever in our area, we invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For times and locations, please visit at EmmanuelAG.com. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to open up the scriptures and take a close look. Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you'll actually minister to this, to our hearts and to our minds. And Lord, let's carry this with us everywhere we go. Lord, impact my life with this. Let me become what this word is saying to me. So that I can be effective in this life and in the kingdom. Lord, give me ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Is that, is, is Kenneth back there? No, he's not. Kenneth disappeared. Bruce, can you cover the PowerPoint for just a minute? Once you get your stuff set up. Because I really did a good job today trying to make slides. <laughs> you guys, if, you, if you've been here, when I started, I didn't have anything prepared like that. It's like, if you guys want to follow with the verses, great. But <laughs> I did slides today. So the first one, it says persistence. Can you put that up there? Persistence. Look at that. Maybe it's a little small, huh? Persistence. Today, I want to talk to you about persistence. Persistence in the Christian life. There are many, many examples of persistence in the scripture. Think about the woman with the issue of blood, how she pressed through the crowd to take a hold of the garment of Jesus to receive her healing. She was persistent. Think about the friends who dug through the roof to let the man down to Jesus when they couldn't get in the house because of the crowds. They went up on the roof, dug a hole, and lowered him down. They were persistent, weren't they? I think all of you are. The four who were carrying him and the man who said, okay, yeah, let's do it. Because <laughs> I think, you know, most of us would have been like, you are not taking me up on that roof in the stretcher and lowering me down. They were persistent. Paid off, didn't it? Think about the Syrophoenician woman who came to Jesus. Remember, her daughter was tormented by a demon. And Jesus said to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. That had been enough to turn most of us off. But she was persistent. She said, yeah, but even the little dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. She was persistent. She wouldn't take no for an answer. Even when it was Jesus telling her no. She got what she came for, didn't she? The woman, remember the woman who wore out the unjust judge? He said, I've got to give her justice. Because otherwise she's going to wear me out coming here. And Jesus used that as an example of how we ought to pray and never give up. Persistence is a good Christian character. God likes to see persistence in our life. You know, persistence is seen as a desirable quality all throughout the scripture. It says in Hebrews 10.36. All right, I like that. It says in Hebrews 10.36, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive was his promise. You have a need of endurance. I want to give you an idea today about persistence. Persistence is an expression of faith. Persistence is an expression of faith. Listen, do you remember when they let the man down through the roof? What did Jesus say? It says he saw, the writers of the gospel said, he saw, Jesus saw their faith. They saw their faith. The Syrophoenician woman, Jesus said to her, 
Great is your faith. For this answer you may go. Your daughter is healed. See, persistence is an expression of faith. Again, the woman with the unjust judge, that was an example how we ought to pray and never give up. And the scripture from Hebrews about endurance, that's at the very end of Hebrews chapter 10. Do you know what comes after Hebrews chapter 10? The faith chapter. It's the introduction to the faith chapter. What makes you or breaks you in faith sometimes is just persistence. I won't give up. I'll keep walking. Persistence pleases God. Because faith pleases God. He likes it when we go after the things that he's given us. Amen? Amen. Everywhere it's mentioned in the scripture, it's rewarded. Think about the Old Testament. You remember Elisha and the Shumanite woman? When her son died, and she went after, she went after, she saddled up her donkey, she went after him and says, you are going to bring him back. <laughs> she was not going to take no for an answer. Persistence is rewarded in the scripture. Now, I've got this person I like to follow on YouTube some. I don't have much time to watch, watch her very much, but she's a piano player. <clears throat> she's an amazing piano player. She plays, um, when, you, when you would listen to how she would, because you're a really good piano player too. You would like her, but you would like her. But the way she arranges things, you would know what I'm talking about. The way she would arrange chords and play with dynamics, it's just so beautiful. And if you would hear her, you'd probably say she's gifted. But you know what we're calling gifted is what, really? Years and years of persistence and practice, discipline, right? It, it takes a lot. Of, I would love to be a piano player like her. But if I'm going to be a piano player like her, I'm going to have to give the time and the effort. I'm going to have to want to play piano more than I want to sit on the couch watching somebody else play piano. <laughs> I need some persistence. I need some discipline in my life. Believe it or not, I did do something something of discipline uh, a decade ago. I can't believe it was a decade ago. It was before I even met you. Um, I ran a marathon. I ran the Knoxville Marathon. It took persistence. It took discipline. I had to make a decision to wake up in the morning whether I felt like it. You know, at 5.30, it's like, alarm goes off. If you give yourself one minute to think about it, you stay in bed, right? No, nope. get up, get dressed, go run. You do that for a while. Then all of a sudden, your body starts waking you up right before the alarm. Get up, let's go. Time to run. But it takes a while to develop that persistence and that discipline. You just don't wake up and decide to do a marathon and do it the next day. So y'all pray for me. I want to have that discipline in my life again. <laughs> but I know what it takes. It takes a decision. It takes cons- consistency. It takes a discipline. And discipline is rewarded. Persistence is rewarded. Look with me at Romans chapter 2, verses 6 and 8. Paul says, speaking about God, he says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Those who by patience in well-doing. I looked that up in a few other translations just so you can kind of get, you know how I like to do that, because you get a fuller expression of what, they're all dealing with the same Greek word, the same Greek text, but people interpreting it different ways give you a full meaning. The New International Version says, those who by persistence in doing good. There's that word, persistence. The New American Standard Bible says, 
those who by perseverance in doing good. I like the good news translation. Some people keep on doing good. Just keep on doing good. And Weymouth says, uh, by lives of persistent right doing. Persistent right doing. So how does one go about, you know, seeking glory, honor, and immortality? By patient well-doing, persistence in doing good, perseverance in doing good, keep on doing good, persistent right doing. You see, the persistence in doing the right things is necessary for us to have success in life. Because my next slide says, persistence is essential for us to have success in life. It says he will render, back to the uh, Romans passage, he will render to each according to his works. Those by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. But look at this other group. They're seeking something else. They're self-seeking. They're not obeying the truth, but they are obeying something, aren't they? They're obeying unrighteousness. So it doesn't matter what I do with my time, my resources, and my energy. It sure does. You know, I'm, I, I really like the grace message. I do. But here, here he's saying the things that we do matter. They have consequences in our lives and in our reward, don't they? And this is, this is Paul. This is the man who, who you know, <laughs> I used to, this has been a decade ago too, I used to go online and argue with people about, you know, the grace message and different things. So I really I believe in the grace of God. Some people have taken it a little far and say it doesn't matter what you do. And one of their favorite arguments was, well, you know, Peter didn't have the revelation of grace that Paul had. Well, this is Paul. <laughs> you can't say Paul didn't have the revelation of grace. If we're going to preach the grace of God, we have to preach it in the context of what Paul was saying to you. And here he's saying what we do, how we spend our time and our resources, it does matter. It has a difference where there's a reward. So you can see here that those who persist in doing good are rewarded, but you can also see that it's possible to be persistent in the wrong things. You can be persistent in your own self-seeking. You can be persistent in obeying unrighteousness. This is because, the next slide, we become proficient in what we practice, and we can become very good at doing the wrong thing. Next slide. We can become experts and doing the wrong things by practice. Wouldn't it be a tragedy? Sounds like Miles Monroe. You guys remember Miles Monroe? Anybody ever listen to Miles Monroe? <laughs> Only Rick Kim? Kaylee? Awesome. You know, the tragedy in life would be, how would he say it? He'd say, like, to, to become, I don't think he'd say it like this, but I can hear him say, to become an expert at the wrong thing. How many hours of persistence and practice do you think it takes to master all 256 levels of Pac-Man? <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> I'm sorry, I know there's better video games out here now, but Pac-Man is kind of my speed. I'm pretty sure only one person's made it that far. <laughs> See, you know that, don't you? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> has, he, has he been able to complete the last level? I actually had to look that up online. The last level was actually, like, glitched. Yeah, that's what I thought. I learned that last night when I looked at how many levels were in Pac-Man. How much time do we need to dedicate to social media before we become proficient gossipers. <laughs> Come on, the word of God says, where words are many, sin is not absent. I just can't imagine that many words flying around and not be sin in there somewhere. That's just to say, how many TV shows do we need to binge watch, binge watch before we become proficient at being a couch potato? Yeah, we can become very good at the wrong thing. 
right? But on the other hand, how much time do you need to practice, say, piano? Jose, I know you play piano very well. How much, how much time do you need to practice the piano become, before you come proficient? Bruce, I know you practice. Trained for seven years. But how, many time, how long does it take before you get good? How many weeks do you need to constantly lift weights or do some kind of walking or running before you start seeing the effects of that, before your health increases, before you get strong? How much time do you need to spend with God before you can consistently hear his voice out in the crowd? See, we become good at what we practice, right? It's important what we're persistent at. I was reading last night just a, a little brief biography of Charles Parham. If you know Charles Parham, the father, father of Pentecost, I think that's what they call him, father of Pentecost. You know, he was called to preach at nine years old. And at nine years old, he started studying the Bible. He started studying literature because he knew he was going to have a speaking ministry. He was called to the ministry. And he began at nine years old. He held his first meeting at 13. He was persistent. And along with that came a lot of persecutions because not everybody received that Pentecostal message right off. People would oppose him. I even read that he was poisoned at one time. He drank water. And, they, and if he thought it was water, he doubled over. And then in the service, God healed him right then. <clears throat> and they said there was enough poison in that water to kill 13 people. And it didn't kill him. He had persecutions. He had pushback. But he had persistence, didn't he? And if you know him, he's the one who started the school in Topeka, Kansas. And the other one in Texas, was it Houston, Texas? Does anybody know Pentecostal history? Houston, Texas, where William Seymour visited and then took the Pentecostal message back to Azusa Street. And everybody knows of Azusa Street, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So um, the man was persistent. But, you know, he did have opposition, didn't he? And that's because progress is messy. Progress is messy. Now, you guys know that I, I have a cabinet shop, so I get to go into a lot of kitchens. And sometimes I'll get a call back or need to go do some, adjust something after the fact, you know, after people are moved in. So I get to go see how people live, what they do with their kitchens. And when I go in there and I see a kitchen that's just perfectly, spotlessly clean, I know one of two things. Either these guys are really, really disciplined, or they eat out a lot. <laughs> because if you're going to cook, you're going to make a mess. And you can, clean, you can clean it up, okay? You don't have to leave it messy. But during the cooking process, you're going to break some eggs, you're going to peel some vegetables, you're going to get some spices, you're going to get some measuring cups, utensils, you're going to dirty some things. You're going to make a mess because if you want a home-cooked meal, you're going to make a little bit of mess, right? If you want to have your cabinets, all chances are it's not because they eat out a lot. Do we not because they eat out a lot? Okay. You're going you're gonna to make a mess. Now, can you make furniture without making sawdust? Wood furniture? Can you, you know, garden? Those of you who garden, I know Rain Kim's been trying to garden. I, I mow the lawn. You can't do that without making grass clippings, make a mess. Whatever you do, you're going to make a mess. Look at, look at Proverbs 14.4 with me. It says, where there is no oxen, the manger... It's clean. But abundant crops come from the strength of an ox. See, if you're not going after a harvest, you don't really need an ox, do you? Maybe having a clean stable is your thing. Maybe they just like to go out there and keep that floor spotless. Don't have to have that old food and that smelly water sitting out there and that smelly ox and clean it up after him. Maybe you like clean stables. 
Maybe you're more concerned with keeping order than bringing in the harvest. How might that apply to us as a church? Are we more concerned about keeping order than we are about bringing in souls? Are we willing to put up with a little mess here and there to get the work done? See, I grew up in the Midwest. I know what it's like to see farms, okay? You know those pictures of farms with the beautiful house, the little windmill, and that perfect red barn, all that trees growing around, maybe a few cows? That's true. It's that beautiful. It is. But if there's anybody who's got a working farm, also, there's a couple tractors, a bunch of haystacks, manure spreaders, cultivators, all these different uh, implements parked all over the yard, everywhere. Plows, disc plows, harvesters, silos. You know what? We, every, every house out there that was a working farm had these big grain elevators that during harvest time they ran day and night to dry down that corn. Constantly. Constant noise. But you know what? You don't see that in those pictures, do you? You don't. But, but you know, that farmer, when he sees it, he looks at it a little different than you might look at it. Because to you, it's like, look at all that old junky equipment. But to him, that's his livelihood. That's how he brings in the harvest. That's how he gets paid. That's how he gets things done. You know, if we're going to go on with God, uh, we might have to put up with some mess here and there. What do you say? Willing to? I am. Even in life. Things that, things that are worth accomplishing cost you something. Sometimes it's messy, but it's okay. You'll like these things if you're a serious farmer, because they help you. You know, the tools that God's given us to, to bring in the harvest in the church, they're messy. You know why? Because they're people. And people are messy. But it's okay. We're all messy. We, we have personalities. Sometimes we have problems, different things, but God still has chosen us to grace us and to use us to bring in this harvest of souls, right? Amen? Look around. This is what he's got. But he's okay with that. He's like the farmer. He looks at you and he says, hey, I like it. I can park in my yard. It's just fine. They can come to my presence and worship me and I'll empower them and send them out and let them do my work. Bring in the souls for the kingdom. You know, people look at it and they say, oh man, look at all the people and strive for trouble or whatever. I mean, I don't know if any strive for trouble, but I'm just saying I know that comes with human nature. And God says, it's okay. That's, that's my tools right there. That's how I bring in the harvest. Amen? Amen. So growing the church can be messy. If we're more interested in controlling things and keeping things in order, and bringing in the harvest, then we'll never embrace the mess, the mess necessary to bring in the harvest. Kind of like, what's that old show with Mike Rowe? Uh, Dirty Jobs with Mike Rowe? You know what I'm talking about? They, they should put like uh, church work in Dirty Jobs. <laughs> Dealing with people, going out. I mean, you know, look at, you know, the people who are, who are in a church, like Michael, you know, out on the front lines every day through Kiko. You know, you see stuff, right? You know that people are dealing with people, bring him in, but that's okay. It's how it works. It's a blessing to be a part of that. God wants us to take control of our actions and our resources and direct them towards success. That's my next point. This is about taking uh, responsibility. 
Now, when I was uh, 16 years old, I started flying lessons. I learned how to fly airplanes at a very young age. And uh, funny thing was, I was getting pretty good at it. I was learning how, I learned how to take off. I was learning how to land. And I was just about ready to have my first solo flight. But I was having a little bit of trouble controlling the airplane on the ground. Okay? Now, you know, when you're driving an airplane on the ground, you're steering with your feet, right? Okay? Because your rudder pedals are hooked up to your nose loop. And that's how you drive it on the ground. But what was happening on this airplane that I was flying, there were springs between the rudder pedals and the nose loop. Okay? The reason was that you could press on those rudder pedals and the rudder would move. But if the airplane wasn't moving, that nose wheel would stay planted and you, you could load that spring. You know what I'm saying? You could feel those springs in your feet. So I'm driving and, and uh, what was happening, I, realized, I didn't realize it at the time, but I was driving and I would feel those springs kicking back at me. And I thought it was my instructor in the other seat moving the pedals. So I said, okay, you know, in my mind, I just yielded to him. I took my feet off and let him drive. Now I look back and I see how stupid that is because do you, do you really think he was trying to steer me into the bean field? <laughs> like, well, I guess, you know, I guess it's the will of my instructor to take me into the bean field. <laughs> no, what he wanted to do, he wanted to see me take authority over that airplane, take control of what he'd given me, and see me take control of that situation and keep that airplane on the center line, right? <clears throat> That's what he wanted to see. He got to the point where he explained to me about the springs, and he said, you know, uh, you got you got to get this. And all of a sudden, the next time we went out, I got it like that. Because I realized that wasn't him pushing on me. That was those springs pushing back. That wasn't him. So I stomped on that pedal, gave it some power, pulled the thing in the right direction, stomped on the other pedal to bring it back, and then kept it right on the center line the whole time. Had no trouble with that from that point on. Once I realized that those... That Feedback, that pushback, was not my instructor. And it's the same thing in our lives. We go out and do what God has told us to do, and we get pushback from circumstances, and from the world, and from the devil. But it's not from God. That's for us to take control of and keep moving forward. That's for us to overcome. It's not God. You know, we have this idea that everything that happens sometimes is God's will. It must have been God's will. No, it's not. Just because it happened. Just because there's some pushback on it. No, it's not God's will. If he gave you a... What, what's that verse we read in Hebrews? We want to know what God is like. We look at Jesus. We don't look at circumstances. We look at Jesus. We don't even look, really. I mean, the Old Testament is for us, but it wasn't specifically to us. It was to the Jewish people. It was God's witness of himself on the earth to people who were not born again, to people who could not handle Jesus or see Jesus or be recreated, have that stony heart taken out and the flesh heart put in. But now that we have Jesus, he's the one who shows us what the Father is like. And whatever feedback you're getting from traditions or circumstances or so-and-so said that God's like, mm, stay with Jesus, push through it, push on that pedal, line up with that center line and stay right there in the middle of the word of God. That is how we determine the course for our lives, the word of God. Do you remember in Matthew 7, there were uh, two builders, the wise builder, Jesus said, and the foolish builder, right? Both of, them built a both of them heard the word of God, both of them built a house, both of them experienced a storm, storms of life, right? What was the single difference between the two? One did what he heard, 
The other did not do what he heard. That was the only difference between the two. We've got to stay with the word. Go on with the word. James 1.22 says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Now, it's really easy to see how everything I've said so far kind of lines up and you can apply it to your life. Um, number one, persistence is essential to your success in life. You become proficient in what you practice. You, be, you can become really good at the wrong thing. Your persistence will be rewarded. Your progress will be messy. And finally, take control of your resources and actions and direct them towards success. It kind of sounds like a motivational speech, doesn't it? This should be on YouTube with some cool, like, you know, people like jumping off of cliffs or something like that, whatever they do, running out in the desert with lions or something, talking about persistence. It's good stuff. It's really good stuff. But, you know, let's, let's look at it one time very quickly in the context of revival. You know, from time to time, God moves throughout history. And we see these times of revival. America was born between two revivals, the, the Great Awakening and the Second Great Awakening. And, you know, when you study it, I kind of think that a lot of, you know, the First Great Awakening, the First Awake One, it was in a time of secular humanism where people were throwing out God out of their, out of their reasoning process and just trying to look at secular rationality, reasoning. That's it. No God. And the first great awakening comes along. And all of a sudden, people are interested again in religious things. And so a lot of our government has been based on the 16th century rationalism that began in Europe. But a lot of what America has become was directed because of the revivals that happened. The second great awakening started a lot of the temperance movements and things to bring, you know, freedoms and rights. And it set us on a trajectory that uh, I don't know that just the government itself could have done. You know, it, it, we need God, and we still need God. I think every one of us would agree that we need a revival in America because we're drifting. We're not going the right way. We need a revival. But I don't know if everybody would say, I need a revival to change me. Because revivals are messy. They're not convenient. See, we've got everything really worked out. It seems like it's enough for us just to get together and talk about how bad we want one. You know, talk about how bad the world's become. And I mean, there are churches, you know, in this town that are so well organized. I'm sorry, I'm not that organized yet. We'll get, we'll get better organized. But, I mean, they've got every group, you know, the, the um, you know, youth group, young adult group. Men's group, women's group, seniors group, you know, everything perfect, worship services that are cued to a click track, <laughs> for real, with a light show. Everything is perfect. Everything is in order. But do they have the strength of an ox to bring in the harvest? That's the one thing that matters. It's good to be excellent. It's good to be disciplined. We want to be as clean as we can, but we don't want to do anything that will sacrifice that strength. We need the strength of the ox. We need to be inconvenienced. We need to be willing to, to, to reach out to people who are not like us, who will mess up our order, who will mess up the status quo, because we become really good at doing what doesn't work. Right? If we practice the wrong thing, we'll become really good at it. 
And if it doesn't work, then we're really good at something that's not working. If God tells us what to do, that would work. Are we ready to run with him? Are we ready to go? It'll be messy. It'll mess us up, but it's okay. We want the strength to bring in the harvest. See, I believe that what we call moves of God. See, I had this time in my life, and I've shared it with you before. It was really amazing. I loved it. Um, I heard this man preaching, and when I did, the power of God came on me for six weeks. I, I, it was at least six weeks. It was amazing. I could feel the power of God in my belly. I was All I did was I would work. I'd put this preaching on in my ears. I'd listen to him all day long. Then I would go home, and I would sit on my chair at my desk and watch three hours of preaching every night. It's all I did. I wanted it. I was hungry. And then I would go out and I'd pray for people. And I was seeing results. The power of God was all over me. It was amazing. And, you know, I believe that uh, whenever we see an experience like that or, or we see a revival in history, what it really is is that it's a signal from heaven just to show us how cold we have become. Because from heaven's perspective, it's a, you know, from our perspective, it's a revival. It's an outpouring. It's a move of God. From heaven's perspective, it's just Jesus being Jesus through his church. See, the whole New Testament was written in a time period where this was happening regularly in all of the churches. All of them. Think about it. Look at the, what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. In uh, Ephesians 1.19. He, he wrote to them, he says, that you, he's praying, that you may know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. To the Corinthians, he said, that when I came to you, I came with a demonstration of the spirit and power. He said to the Corinthians that you guys are not behind any of the other churches in spiritual gifts. This stuff was flowing in all of these churches. To Rome, he talked about how the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead moved into your body and gives your body life. This is what they were experiencing in the early church, everywhere. To the Galatians, he said that um, whenever you hear with faith, you receive the Holy Spirit. He's the one who works miracles among you. Galatians 1.5, the Spirit of God is working miracles among you. To the Philippians, he talked about knowing him and the power of his resurrection. Not that he's obtained this, but he's pressing on to take hope. Okay, this is Paul who, you know... Uh, the handkerchiefs and, you know, people saved and all this stuff going on. He's still pressing on to know him. <clears throat> See, the reason I'm saying it's a signal from heaven to show us how complacent we've become is because Jesus has already done what needed to be done to make a revival a permanent part of our lives. Is that up there? Go back one can. I'm going to put it up. I've worked on the slide. I'm going to put it up there. <laughs> Jesus has already done what needed to be done to make revival a permanent part of our culture. He did. We act like it's a special move, but see, God did everything in Jesus. Everything that Jesus died to provide is ours to press on and receive. And even if you can't get the culture to come with you, you can have a personal revival. You absolutely can. So it's time to take control of our time and resources that Jesus has given us and direct them toward revival as a church. As we pray, you know, I don't know for sure what everything's gonna look like. I have some ideas, but uh, we're, we're in this together, guys. We're working together, we're laboring in the vineyard. Do you remember um, the parable that Jesus told when, when the, the vineyard owner went out to the, 
to the vineyard and he said, he hired day laborers basically. He said, go work in my vineyard. So they said, okay. About nine o'clock in the morning, three hours later, he goes and finds still others standing around. He said, what are you doing standing around? They said, nobody hired us. <clears throat> I'll hire you. Go work in my vineyard. This is Jesus. What are you doing standing around? Well, I don't have a, I don't have a, a place to, I'll hire you. Go work in my vineyard. I don't, you don't need a bunch of qualifications. You don't need a, a degree. I'll hire you. Go work in my vineyard. He went back at noon. Still more people standing around. So what are you guys doing standing around? Nobody hired us. I'll hire you. Go to work. I've got something for you to do. I'll pay you what's right. I've got a reward in my hand. He said he's coming back with his reward in his hand, right? He'll, be, he'll, he'll pay us what's right. Then finally at 3 o'clock, he went out and there's still people standing around. What are you standing around for? Nobody hired us. I'll hire you. Get to work. Go to my vineyard. But it's messy. You know how vineyard, well, I can only imagine I've never worked in a vineyard, collecting the grapes, treading on the grapes, and all that stuff going on. It's hard work. It's messy. But you know what? It didn't really matter what the personality of the people were, what their background was, where they were from. None of that mattered. Can you pick the grapes and put them in the bucket? <laughs> it's not rocket science. Go pick up the grapes and put them in the bucket. Don't need you to be like me. I just need you to be able to pick grapes. I don't even need you to like me. I just need you to pick grapes. So when we get around people who are not like us, it doesn't matter. The master said, I want them to work in the vineyard right alongside of you. There'll be people who I don't know. Maybe people I wouldn't hang out with. But you know what? I bet you picking grapes with them for a few weeks, I'll start to be friends. Start to have conversations now. So just get ready for a mess. <laughs> just get ready for a mess. That's all I got to say. You know, in the book of Acts is a history book. And, and you got to love the book of Acts because it's problem after problem after problem. It's not really just this glory. With all this glory, there's problems, there's persecutions. There, you know, some of the most glorious stories were people who were like whipped and thrown in jail, right? I mean, earthquakes to get out of jail are pretty cool. But getting whipped and thrown into jail is not cool. <laughs> a, lot of tr- a lot of trouble. But, you know... Uh, one of the first problems that the church had was um, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Jews, you know? The, the, some Jews kept their, their language and their culture pure, and then the ones who adapted to Greek culture were, were speaking Greek. And there was division right there among the Jewish Christians. This was before the Gentiles came in, and they had to deal with that. That's when they appointed the deacons and the table waiters and everything. And they, they had to reconcile. The whole, the whole book of Acts is about the church coming and working together, even though people are radically different. After they finally worked that out, I mean, the next thing is, do the Gentiles have to keep the law when they get saved? You know, the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And, and you read, you know, through Romans and Ephesians, and it says out of the two, he made one man, one new man. It, it, and think about this, think about this. In the book of um, Galatians, Paul comes down and he is livid because Peter wouldn't eat at the table with the Jewish or with the Gentiles. Remember that? Why is that so important? He's, he's saying, this is another gospel. Someone's preaching you another gospel. Let him be accursed. 
Because there's no divisions in that. The fact that they could come together and share the Lord's Supper was a sign that they were all uh, accepted by God in this present time. And, and to, to compromise on that and have these schisms and divisions, in Paul's mind, was a compromise of the gospel, saying it was to be cursed. Anathema. I'll say it again. Let it be accursed. That's what he said. He was livid. And so you see all through the New Testament about getting, getting along with people who are not like them. So are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go for it. Let's go for it. I know I, I don't have an altar call for this service today, for this sermon. I don't think it needs an altar call. I think what, what we have is a, a time just to say, I hear the word. Let's work it out in our lives. Let's learn how to see one another the way that God sees them. And let's not disqualify people who God has qualified. Let's help one another push on. Because if you can pick the grapes, <laughs> let's go pick the grapes together. Amen? Get ready to be challenged. Get ready to be stretched. Get ready for a mess. But that's my prayer. If you guys will join with me. Let's just pray that God messes us up, right? Amen. Pray with me. Father God, we just thank you for your word. And we thank you for this word, Lord. We thank you for the word of persistence and perseverance. Lord, help us to carry this with us. Remember it. Act it out in our lives. And be gracious toward one another as we find ourselves laboring in the kingdom for people from, with people from different backgrounds, different cultures, maybe even different languages, different experiences. Father, that we can line up side by side with them and shoulder the weight of the kingdom and bring about your glory on the earth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.